Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Glad you could join with me tonight, and tonight is a really one of my one of my favorite favorite authors of all time. Uh, Gary Wayne is with us, and tonight was supposed to be a show that that goes went into his new book, which is the second book in his in his massive series of um, Genesis Six Conspiracy, and um, it, it's 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 such an exciting time to have him with us because since the book wasn't ready we've we've had him on three or four shows with different topics that you know do illustrate the fact that this man is is amazing and his wealth of knowledge is phenomenal and so he's able to 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 speak extemporaneously just about on just about any topic and tonight's t- is 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 a topic that that I have been fascinated with for a very long time, and I was really surprised and fascinated that he suggested it because it didn't feel like it fit in with Genesis six, but apparently it does, and within times prophecies, um, we're going to be talking about World War II Nazi occultism in Germany, and it's it's going to be a fascinating show because we're going to be getting into things that to be honest with you I had never considered but certainly do seem to tie in so welcome to the show Gary well Hello. thank you for inviting me back thank you for inviting me back and uh, so happy to be here with you again tonight well i think the what what i love is that that you are you are able to tie all sorts of history, not only ancient but current history, into into your your book and the philosophies carried within the book because um, it feels very much to me as though we are at this moment in time repeating history and that old saying of you know those who don't understand history are doomed to repeat it, and it does feel like we are repeating it in frightening ways. And when you pull in World War II, um, it, it 
it's so close, and we saw such horrors and such um, such terrible things done during World War II, and it does feel as though the cultures today are repeating a lot of this behavior. And I'm wondering if if you know it, it is the the end times prophecies do fit in to what's happening today, and and it is very upsetting to say the least. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting, and in the times that we lived, just as World War II was interesting, and I'm sure people back then thought that may have been a time of the apocalypse too, with what was going on. And you know, we'll touch on some of those things tonight. One of the things that you touched on is about learning from history, and also what is also a common sort of understanding. Uh, that is in all religions and including the Bible and out of the book of Ecclesiastics in chapter 1, nothing is new under the sun. What has been will be again. And there's this seemingly repeating cycle that happens throughout our history. And as we move closer to the end of this age, whatever your belief system says that that means, then we're going to see some repeats of things that have happened in the past. And just as biblical prophecy talks about the sorrows and the beginning of sorrows and the fig tree generation, that they get stronger throughout that fig tree generation, I think these repeats, particularly since the flood and after the first apocalypse by water and the second apocalypse is going to be by fire, is that these kinds of repeating scenarios will get stronger as we go throughout our history and will come to a complete sort of apex in the level of things of change and or destruction, depending on your perspective on this, that happens in the the end of this age. And so... We're, you know, when we look at these kinds of things, there's a cross-cultural, there's a cross-religious accent on and writings on what that time is, is is going to be like. And if I look at one particular one, which is particularly relevant to tonight's topic, uh, there was a very famous individual that I I can't even imagine how many authors have written about him and how many books have been written about him. And he was a Rosicrucian named Nostradamus. And he kind of outlined that in terms of this Antichrist type of individual that he depicted three from his time. And although his I suppose the way he wrote in his encrypted sort of way uh, lends a number of people to say they're, they are you know, rather obscure and you can't sort of be on solid ground with it. Other people will say that, well, he is, if you understand how he was doing his writing and his legomanism and green language and everything that he was using that was in there, and they kind of agree on three individuals. Uh, of these Antichrist-type figures. And the first one 
and understand this goes in with that sort of rep- uh, repetition of the cycles is you had Napoleon who would have been looked upon as somebody usurping his throne and uh, usurping the revolution in France, and that is kind of similar to an end-time sort of apocalyptic scenario. But we're not going to talk about that relationship today, but he's the first of, anti- uh, of, of uh, Nostradamus's Antichrist-type figures. And then the next one is Hitler, and he's the second one. And people say, well, Hitler's not named, except that uh, he uses this sort of very close derivative or source of Hitler, as as some people think, as Hitler, and that's sort of the ancient yeah. word for um, for the river that he was born on, uh, born along. And so uh, he is the second figure, but he also prophesied another one to come. But we can learn from these previous Antichrist figures as to what they were doing and what might happen here. So Hitler, he usurps power as well. One might then assume that the end-time Antichrist will usurp power as well. And, uh, and, and indeed he does, and he actually overthrows three of the end-time kings. And one might also deduce from that that you can have a whole bunch of other events that are very, very similar. And so I think what happened with World War II foreshadows a lot of things that we need to sort of understand and unpack. I I have a question about end times and, and the Antichrist. Is it possible that the Antichrist is not necessarily a single uni- uh, a single individual, but rather a, uh, a, a corporate entity like like a group of people that have a representative philosophy that that they're they're trying to nail through society, or or does it have to be an individual? Because I you know, I can <clears throat> I can see governments doing exactly what they say the Antichrist was supposedly going to do, but not a single person. Is, is that a possibility? Yeah, yeah I think it's, it's, it's actually even sort of more than that. So from a biblical perspective, we understand Antichrist is called the beast, and he yeah. will lead the eighth empire after overthrowing the seventh beast empire, and he's the eighth. East Empire. So it's an individual and it is a geopolitical organization as well. But it's more than that. So it will, he will set up his own religion. So it's going to be a religious system as well. And then he implements um, and I think takes over the system of Babylon after he destroys Babylon. And that's the beast system. And the religion before was sort of the beast religion, the religion of all of the sort of previous beast empires. So I think we have to understand when we're looking at references to Antichrist or the systems or the the governments of that time, you have to look at them sort of compartmentalized but interconnected. Okay. All right. Thank you, because that's, you know, 
you know I still struggle with it could be a woman, but that's just me. Um, hey, we won't know until it gets there. What we do know is there's going to be many antichrists, though. Yeah. So at least from biblical perspective. So Jesus warned us of that, and the epistles of John warn us of that. So, And I think we need to be very careful as to pointing at everybody as who is the Antichrist, uh, just as typically it's uh, quite common practice these days to point at every leader of the EEC or president of the United States and say, he's, he's the Antichrist or she's the Antichrist. We need to be patient because Antichrist is also going to need another Antichrist to have a counterfeit Armageddon, so it's going to get complicated. Yeah, and it, it's starting to. <laughs> so, so take us back to to World War II and, and Adolf Hitler, because your suggestions for tonight were fascinating. Yeah, and World War II is a, is an extension of World War One. It's actually sort of, in my opinion, the same war that just things didn't get resolved. And so, you have sort of the roots of the movement of national socialism uh, that began coming out of World War One, And there's a con- sort of a group of people that are going, and organizations that are going to be assembled by 1918 that will start to promote and ascend uh, Antichrist to power, or not Antichrist, Hitler to power. And so we're going to have a number of things that sort of come together. So there's going to be uh, the occult religion that's going to be a perversion of theosophy. There's going to be occult organizations, secret societies, uh, and you're also going to have banking that's involved to bring Hitler to power. And they're also going to be relying on history and mythology to create the mythos of the of the national socialist movement and all of this comes together to propel hitler to seemingly something that probably you wouldn't think could happen and national socialism seems to be created out of a a movement out of some secret societies called social masonry and social masonry originally begat communism. And so Trotsky and uh, Lenin were sent to Russia from the United States, bankrolled by the banks and and the U.S. government to go over when it looked like uh, the regime that was toppled was going to actually retake it with another set of nobility, I think, with the white Russians. And so Lenin and Trotsky were sent over to take that uh, regime down that was re-rising through the ashes after the Romanovs were all assassinated. Mm-hmm. So the National Socialism was created in response to that because you have the communists getting out of control rather quickly. And uh, even though it may have done what they would have liked to have seen done, it got out of control, just as National Socialism would get out of control. So... You know, starting in 1918, um, you have a group called the Thule Society that was 
founded by and is one of the main proponents of the founding by a fellow by the name of Sebettendorf and the and the Munich Lodge. And so you have this new society that is set up and Thule is a ancient sort of mythos that is similar to the Atlantean mythos. And we'll come back to that later perhaps. But it's uh goes back to the age before the flood in terms of what they're the ideas that, that they are promoting. And in 1918, the Thule Society starts the DAP, which is the German Worker Party. Um, and the German Worker Party is uh, a, a party that is going to work with the German Orden or the German Order. And it's a, a theosophical uh, society and maybe leaning towards what they would call Ariosophy, which is the Pan-Aryan movement that gets overlaid onto Theosophy and takes it uh, awry, so to speak. And then in 1919, uh, Hitler joins the DAP. And so you start to see the building blocks that are being moved forward. And in the 19, early 1920s, the Thule Society buys uh, a newspaper called the Volkisch Befacher, and uh, it has as an editor um, a fellow named Eckhart who becomes Hitler's mentor. And so this begins his movement up. But you can see how these moving parts are starting to, to work together to bring about the German National Socialistic Movement. So... Before I start to go a little bit further back into history, Barbara, I thought I'd let you in if you wanted to ask some questions or say something about sort of that early beginnings to the formation or the birth of National Socialism in Germany. Uh, <clears throat> well, I think what what has always – this is an area that, that, you know, I have done some some study in only because I, want, I was trying to figure out what made Hitler – what he was, and I, I think if left on his own, he wouldn't have gone as far as he did, but with the Thule Society behind him, he became a puppet to a degree, and, and I, I guess a puppet that cut cut his strings at one point and just took off yeah. on his own, yeah. and, exactly. and so it, 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 was, it was, to me, watching, you know, learning about his, his younger years and the kind of family he grew up on, and and what he wanted to do with his life, and then the war came, and he was gassed, and he was blind for a number of years, and then became angry. But that, that, in a way, he was manipulated into this in order to be opened to whatever influences came into him, and almost as though, you know, was there, uh, gosh, I almost want to say spiritual, but that's not the right way. Was was there? Um, a manipulation of him by entities that were probably not good entities. In other, in other words, was he not only influenced by the Thule Society, but was there perhaps even, um, gosh, I don't want to say demons, but but unfriendly spirits that came in and took him over. I would definitely say both, and you know, at the higher levels of some of these organizations, the adepts, and certainly Eckhart as his mentor, he would have been 
sort of fast-tracking Hitler through the degrees, and they would talk with what they would call the celestial masters or the great, great white brotherhood or spirit guides, aliens, whatever you want to call them. They were in contact with um, these beings. So not only sort of the visible people, the organizations, but some of the invisible ones, and that one can imagine that not all would have been wanting to do good with uh, controlling Hitler. So, uh, and I think the the end result speaks that he, he was definitely would have been influenced by some of those those evil beings. And what's really interesting to sort of underscore that this isn't speculation in terms of some of the things that took over the movement. Um, in the Nuremberg trials, um, occult evidence was not presented to the courts uh, in defense of the Nazis. They would not even let it into the body of evidence, period, because the prosecutors, and according to Ari Neve, one of the head prosecutors, or the head one, certainly from the U.S., he stated that large bodies of evidence were left out because it was so bizarre so as to, to permit the accused to plead insanity. And they didn't want to let that in. So a lot of the occult record wasn't released until mid to late 90s once the declassification started to come out. And you can get, it takes a lot of thumbing through, but you can get a lot of this information from archives.org that has the declassified records of m- m- much of this evidence that wasn't permitted to go to trial. If somebody gets a hold of me, I can send you uh, a Word document where I've recorded some of these uh, classified links, and you just click on them, and it'll take you right through it. So it was to such a high level of corruption that they didn't want it to uh, affect a guilty verdict that it might be they might be able to use an insanity uh, plea, so it wasn't permitted. Well, I know that um, with the Soul Society, um, they used hallucinogenics uh, for quite a yeah. while, and and so that once you break down the barriers inside with with drugs, you know yep. you become you've got buddy in you've got portals hands. without control. Yeah, you yeah. create portals without being able to close the door. You have no no ability to stop what's coming in. So, yeah, that makes it sort of difficult. So, what I want to do, if 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 uh, if we can, is is to start building a little bit of this this history that got them to 1918, and talk about some of the information and the ideology that that was involved. Um, to give the audience okay. a, a bit better flavor. So um, if I look at sort of a, a history of the rise of Nazi Germany, I, I would actually go back to 1864. And in 1864, a German named Karl Kuhnmann, um he sees the, something called the Pergamum Altar and decides to uh, excavate it. And the Pergamum Altar um, is the altar of Zeus. 
or the seat of Zeus is, is the mythos that sort of goes with it. And then it gets, they start to excavate by 1878 to 1886. And then in 18, uh, so in 1871, you get another intersecting date that's going to be part of the mythos of the, uh, not the mythos, but the culture of national socialism and the religious nature that's going to have a big impact in its early days. And that's called Theosophy that was established um, by Helen Bolivarsky in 1875. Uh, so three years later, the, the Zeus altar uh, arrives in Germany, and it's going to be moved to Berlin, um, and a museum is, is set up for it that lasts, you know, is finished 1897 to 1899 until about 1908. But this is going to be sort of, again, sort of building blocks to this sort of revisionist history that National Socialism is going to latch on to, to rebuild. And in um, 1889, Hitler is born. So he's born into this sort of rising nature. Now, in 1891, the Road Society is going to fund the Rothschilds and the Roundtables uh, and, and the inquiry that's going to be start to establish uh, more of a march to globalism and world government. Obviously, it's taking way longer than he would have anticipated. Um, and in 1900, theosophy um, in Germany morphs to more of an offshoot, something that they're going to call Ariosophy or Pan-Aryan. So Ari instead of Theo and Arian, Aria from Arian, and they called it Ariosophy. And what that is, is now bringing in something called uh, Grayle ideology and Volkish ideology. And so Gray ideology um, is a bloodline secret message type of, of, of understanding and that secret bloodline is the secret bloodline of the Fuhrer and the, and the Messiah. The Volkish ideology, and the Grail also overlays like the Teutonic Knights as the Knights of the Round Table as well. So it's a, they're a similar organization to the Knights Templar. They have the same sort of organizational structure, but it's a German historical uh, order, the Teutonic Order, and, and you know, the Black Cross. So um, and again, the Black Cross is going to be part of the, the National Socialist sort of imagery. And when, and within this Grail ideology, you have the real Rosicrucian ideology and belief that is going to start entering in. And Vril is a potency in the blood. Some people say Rh negative uh, blood that will sponsor a future race of human beings. And the idea is to be able to maybe backwards engineer uh, ancient bloodlines or ancient samples and things to recreate uh, a super race. And that starts to intersect with that Thule Society as a parallel 
Atlantean society that it was the National Socialist belief that Aryans were blonde hair, blue eyed, and pale skinned. And some were, like the Tuatha de Danan. There's also red hair, hazel eyed, pale skinned, yeah. and dark haired ones as well. But these are the ones that migrated up the Danube in their, their understanding, it went all the way up to. to the Vikings as well. And that's who they're going to base their demigod status at that they're going to try and recreate. And obviously the Aryan sort of relationship. And so this is a belief or a doctrine that's based in racial purity and bloodlines that they're going to try and reestablish. And they're going to do that as well going forward by you know, trying to interbreed only the purest of the bloodlines and the physical traits that they're looking for going forward to create the new man, which ultimately would be a new giant demigod. And Volkish ideology, or Das Volk, uh, meaning folk soul or soul of the folk history, um, is based on something called the hero collective. And a hero was like a hero in Greek mythology, uh, which would be the offspring of a god and a human male or female. So Hercules, for example, would be the son of uh, a female human named Alchemy and Zeus. And you also have like the uh, kings of Aruk that were called heroes as well. So Gilgamesh, Lugabanda, that series of giants would also be uh, understood as heroes and, and demigods as well, with those giants being two-thirds god and one-third human and being the offspring of a fertility goddess, uh, Nin, and uh, with Gilgamesh and Lugabanda being his father, uh, uh, a king of Uruk. So this is the Volkish ideology. It's a hero uh, ideology that's going to mix with the real and the grail ideology that they also that comes along with this is their divine destiny and manifestation or manifest destiny to rule and uh, you know after the flood from a uh, christian perspective that would be from mount hermon from the assembly of the gods there uh, in the bible they'd be known as the balim but they're basically the same i think pantheons around the world so they're just different names for the same set of gods mm-hmm. and all of that came together that was going to be part of that Thule society that Zimbettendorf div- uh, combines with the German Orden real Volkish uh, ideology into the Thule mythos and so Thule is immersed in black magic just as uh, Atlantis was. Some people will also say they had a lot of good magic there as well. Um, and that um, Atlantis was antediluvian. And so they're trying to create like this new reign of Atlantis. And Atlantis was famous in Critaeus and Timaeus for trying to establish a world empire. And it had 10 uh, sons of Poseidon and Clido, uh, with obviously Atlas as being the most famous in in Atlantis, but they had 10 parts to the empire, and they were trying to uh, take their golden age and take that worldwide before the flood comes along. 
And so the members actually sort of referred to themselves as Atlanteans and as the warrior sort of understanding as Teutonic Knights. And that's part of the whole sort of understanding as well. And uh, they were dedicated to destroying the ancient Aryan enemies. And uh, being, in this case, they first started to pick on people uh, of, of uh, the Jewish persuasion and Israelites. Uh-huh. But as we know, they were going to be extending that to a whole bunch of other people. So this whole ideology will, will get right out of control. So is this so where, where we, the eugenics comes in? Yes. It's an extension okay. of that, right? Uh, A2, uh, they want to create the new man through through that process and also to eliminate aspects that are not going to contribute to creating this new man. And the new man is simply a new demigod. So they wanted to create it a new Nephilim or a new giant or a new Raphaim. Mm-hmm. So when we look Can at... Yeah, so you, you get you get a lot of different thought that's sort of going into this, and it hasn't really, you know, come out into a full religion. But it, and it won't do that till 1933 when they declare the Rice Church as their Pan-Aryan religion, and uh, they take sort of a mix of polytheism and monotheism, and they look at Jesus as a mortal prophet, but a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, white-skinned Aryan versus um, somebody from the tribe of Judah. And that's going to be the church that's going to become the nationalist church. So it's a state-sponsored church that is launched in 1933. But moving back in time again to after uh, the time of, uh, you know, 1900, uh, where you have uh, theosophy now being morphed into this Ariosophy, or their Pan-Aryan religion, Um, in between 1901 and 1905, an order by the the name of the uh, Armin Order is created by Von List. And this is an order that is focused on uh, the Teutonic uh, mythos, uh, the Teutonic Knights, and is thought to be an Illuminati organization. In 1907, there's another order that is going to form, and that's the New Temple Order um, that is created by Jorgen von Liefenfels. Uh, that also includes Cistercian monks, which is uh, a Gnostic order as part of this New Temple Order. And in 1910... You have a new Pergamum museum that is going to be start to be built that they're going to put the Zeus altar into down the road. And in 1912, you have the Germanen Order established that adopts the works of Wagner into the movement. And I'll come back and talk about some of these people in a few minutes. I just want to lay down some of the progression is how this works. And this all will morph into uh, what happens in 1918 with, with the Thule Society. 
So okay. I want to focus on on uh, some of the more important individuals that are going to be very important people in this movement as as it comes together. So you have uh, Helen Belaski, who we we mentioned earlier, who's the founder of Theosophy. So that's kind of an extension out of uh, Gnosticism and is thought by a lot of the higher secret societies that they want to use Theosophy to be the religion that's going to unite religion and science in the end time, sort of as is talked about in um, the Rosicrucian um, Francis Bacon's writing the New Atlantis. Uh, there's another individual named um, uh, Stefan George, who in the early 1900s it was a poet and a writer uh, and, and uh, a practitioner of theosophy. And uh, what he does is he co-ops uh, out of uh, Longren's the title of the fear that was written about with Wagner in his uh, writings. And that's going to be the title that is going to be adopted by uh, Hitler as his dictator title or his messianic sort of title. And his writings taught were taught to the Hitler movement that were organized starting in 1923. So his ideology, his his worldview was very much part of the Hitler Youth Movement. Wagner um, was a major proponent of this Volkish ideology in his uh, in his writings and uh, and his and his music. And it drew heavily on the Gray mythology that we talked about earlier. And it also drew on Eschenbach's Grail's writing that was originally funded by, obviously, the noble elite, but heavily funded by the Knights Templar, which is why you see these Templars in the Knights of the Round Table, where they really don't have a position in there. They're sort of backdated into it, but they believe that these noble royal bloodlines that made up the higher levels of the Knight Orders uh, were descended from these uh, Knights of the Round Table. Uh, that were kings of, of, of many nations in that belief of uh, the Arthurian tales. And it was, I would say, anti-Semitic in the writings, and these writings heavily influenced uh, Wagner. So in 1933, um, when uh, Hitler is going to establish his uh, Rice Church, He's actually going to sit down uh, at a live presentation of one of, uh, of Wagner's plays, uh, uh, Percival, and uh, then announces the Rice Church the next day. That's just sort of how enthralled he was with those writings. Yeah. In uh, in. Von List is another one that I think I mentioned a, a few minutes ago. He was kind of the architect, one of the architects of Ariosophy, as was Jorgen Land's Liebenfels. And List combined uh, 
also theosophy and Volkish ideology uh, that others also had, were combining. But he's kind of credited with the first one to do that. And, of course, first the Armenian Orden, which was an Indo-Aryan uh, movement and heavily sort of into the Brahmin and uh, Eastern religions. And Liefenfels, he was the one who created the new temple order that also adopted the swastika, which was you know looked at in Eastern Hinduism as being a good symbol that they turned into the, you know pretty much the representation of evil. And so he was also it was also known as not not only as the new temple order but also as the ordo novi temple and then you have a fellow by the name of uh Sebettendorf, um in 1912 who established the german order and he establishes the thule society in 1918 and it is um eckhart who is going to be Come the mentor of Hitler into the occult religions, into the cult mysteries, into the secret knowledge, and into Ariosophy as it has been uh, developed. And he was uh, also a Thule Society member. Another individual that plays a big part in this whole revisionist type of history that they're creating for their mythos is a scientist named Hans Horberger. And uh, he's a scientist and an author of glacial cosmology, and he's believed uh, he believed in the giants of Sumeria and the ones that were written in the Bible. And of course, he heavily also influences Hitler in in his writings. And he believed that superhumans ruled before the flood. And again, that's sort of that whole ideology that they want to bring back in that new man doctrine of the National Socialist Movement. And moving this forward a little bit, you have what I would call some very important people who are like the, uh, the, uh, the glue and the, the religious sort of dynamite that are going to pull this whole thing together. So Elfin Rosenberg becomes one of the you know, great apostles of this Rice Church. And he's the maker of Nazi doctrine and was a Nazi. They actually classified him as a theoretician. And so it's his theology that he's, that he's going to uh, be knitting into this Rice Church that's based on all of these other things that we're talking, we were talking about before. And he's also a member of the Thule Society. He also wrote The Myth of the 20th Century. Um, and uh, he is uh, proclaimed... Uh, several times in his life the death of Christianity. So he was is anti-Christian in his approach and obviously anti-Semitic in his approach as well. And he believed in Volkish ideology would regain the German soul. So it would become that reincarnated ethos of, of, of that linked all Germans together. Ernst Bergman, who wrote Die Deichart National, um, the German National Church, which is the Reich Church that he's working with Rosenberg on, is a member of the German belief movement and said that Ariosophy was, was the religion of Mithras or Mithraism, which is rooted in Zoroastrianism, which was the religion of the Indo-Aryans. 
in that uh, Jesus, he also said and put into the doctrine that Jesus was a, uh, a pantheist or a polytheist and not uh, a monotheist, and that he also heavily influenced the church's uh, ideology and theology in racist doctrine and ra- in, uh, blood doctrine of the bloodlines past. So you have uh, all of these people that are working actively together and coming together starting in about 1918 to create uh, the Nazi movement. So after that sort of long sort of history, I thought I'd let you back in, but I just wanted to sort of give people an idea of how much went into their belief system and the creation and that this was an ongoing adding to that mythos because they're planning to reign in the Third Reich for a thousand years. Yeah, and but it, I think what I find fascinating is that while they basically went back to a form of paganism in creating their religion, and and he was trying to force everyone to give up their belief system to join into his 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 you know his the 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 religion of the movement. Um, he he remains remains a Catholic for the whole you know his whole life. He never renounces Catholicism, nor do a couple of the other big guys in there. Um, even though everyone else is is you know. They have to give up their religion in order to be a member of the party and and to to um, raise, rise higher in in the organization. Hitler never did. Of course, he was at the top. He didn't have to. But uh, exactly. it, it seems it seems to me, yeah, yeah, I'm the boss. You know, it's kind of like let me see, let me speak to the manager. Well, I'm the manager. Um, so I mean, with what they did, it was it Hess that had the castle that was um, that that was uh, re, re, reworked in a way that in the basement there was the circle where where the ashes of all of the leaders were going to be at some point in time when well after they died of course, um, yeah. but I mean they 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 really bought into all of this and they really became literal fanatics about it and. Um, to the point where that you know you kill your children, which is you know I yeah. mean horrifying, just horrifying. But but it, it's sort of like it it does become a cult. I, I mean I would say Nazism was was a cult with capital letters. And yeah. and yet and yet the movement from socialism into communism into Nazism. Is is almost a ladder that we're seeing happening today. Yeah, we hope it doesn't get there. But if if we take a, a lesson from the past, we want to. You would want to try and take steps to make sure that it doesn't continue in the in the sort of the wrong sort of progression on that. To kind of use a double entendre on that. So, and you know they were. You know, when people look at uh, some of the movies that are kind of made, um, let's say uh, the Indiana Jones is what I'm kind of referencing here. You know, he's looking for, you know, the Ark of the Covenant. He's looking for the Grail. Um, They're looking for uh, 
anything to do with Grail history and anything that's going to add to their power. And so well, this, this becomes an, an obsession on the... Go ahead. Wasn't, wasn't Hitler after the sphere of destiny? Wasn't that one of the biggest things he was going for when he went into, um, gosh, was it Austria? I, you know, he the sphere of yeah. destiny was one of the main things that um, the Americans were trying to recover, and you know, it it begs the point: did they get the real one, or did the Nazis make a facsimile, and that the real sphere of destiny is still somewhere out there? Yeah, it would appear that he got the one that was in in, in Austria. Um, so he was smitten by the, you know, what they. And I wrote in the book, The Hollows of the Grail Treasures and Romances. And so he saw himself as a Grail Knight, as a Grail King. And so he he wanted to get uh, anything that they could on this type of history. Um, and the Spear of Longinus was, you know, it's on display in Habsburg in Vienna today and was back then as well. And... It was thought to be, in in the history of it, thought to be um, the lance of Charlemagne and yeah. the uh, great and what they would call the Grail Spear of Destiny. So this was like a Magianic symbol of ruling that he wanted to get his hands on, and that some of the more ancient history to to this is is that it's thought to be. Uh, the rod of the Adunaki of the Ring Lords, and not necessarily the spear that uh, some people says spear, say speared Jesus on the cross, and that as the rod of the Adunaki, uh, it was also called the rule of government, and it came with it the divine right to rule. So maybe there was more than one that he was looking for, but either way. He was uh, looking to get that. He actually, I think he got his hands on it, um, and then it was returned, yeah. you know, after, after the war. But he had set up, uh, and his government had set up, a fellow by the name of Otto Rahn, uh, mm-hmm. who was their chief occult researcher and archaeologist. So some of the stuff in Indiana Jones is based off of uh, this aspect of it. And you have to remember, Indiana Jones came out in started in the 1980s and before the release of some of these classified documents. And uh, he actually wrote a book, uh, Adoran did, called Crusade Against the Grail. And so his main, and he was sort of guiding the SS to go all over the world to certain things to retrieve things. Um, but they actually did some very, very large excavations um, in the Languedoc area uh, at Monte Segur. Yeah, well, they and, didn't, they, didn't they have uh, they sent um, groups into the into the Himalayas and into Tibet to, to yes. measure heads and measure eyes and yep. Yep. I mean they were looking for something, but um, they they were looking for the foundation of the Aryan race, I think, but not they sure. Were. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think they were. And, I think they were looking to try and maybe get some DNA or something that they could be working with, even though it was way ahead of where science was at that time. But you know, as we get into the second half, we'll talk about how far ahead 
the Germans were under Hitler on a lot of technologies. So oh, they may have been looking to to do that. So and they were, you know, already working on trying to get the atomic uh weaponry as well and were just having trouble getting uh the resources, and as I recall, heavy water was the the biggest uh, stumbling block to them getting the atomic bomb first. So, yeah, they were going worldwide to get anything that they could that could add to their power. Well, the the so, spear, you know, the spear itself, the, the fable goes that any ruler that has it in his in his control um, will will never be defeated. So, you know the yeah. the. The, the history that went along with it was profound, and but I think also, you know, it, it was it was it, wasn't he born in Austria? Yes. Okay, so he, he wanted yep. yeah, that. That was one of the reason one of the reasons he wanted to take over Austria. He wanted to re yep. reconnect it to what what his you know where his homeland was, but it just to me. Yeah, anything based you know, anything anytime you bring Helena Blavatsky into it, you know, you you've got um so much occultism there that it's unbelievable. And and that uh, it was in the shadows a great deal of it at least as far as the higher echelons went because the people didn't understand where it was coming from. They they just blindly because, you know, the trains ran on time, so therefore they thought he was yeah. God. And and he got off on that terribly so yeah they they were able to keep things sort of out of their reach or in the ears of the you know most of the public on on the things that they were doing that's a problem with creations of the deep state and things like that so and to that end i mean ron was uh otto ron had believed that montesquieu had held the secret location to the Jerusalem treasure uh, that the Templars had excavated and taken back um, and a couple other streams that would uh, also supply that. So, you know, things ranging from, according to the legend of what would have been in there that they're excavating for were the tablets of the testimony, the Ark of the Covenant, all sorts of uh, occult knowledge coming from King Solomon um, in their belief, the Holy Grail, the Spear of Longinus, or Charlemagne. I'm thinking this would be where the Spear of Longinus, as the spear that would have stabbed Jesus, would have more likely been, and the one in Austria would have been more of the um, Rod of the Anunnaki. That's why I said there's there could be two different spears, mm-hmm. uh, copper scrolls, and what's really interesting is is that on March 15th in 1944, um, there was a telegram that went to Berlin saying, Eureka. Uh, and the telegram went back saying, well done and congratulations. They weren't talking specifically what they're doing, but because these are telegrams, they weren't going to put the detail on it. And the second note coming back from from Berlin was await for our, our arrival. And uh, well, so, wasn't, wasn't that the Mount Segur stuff? Yeah, yeah, okay. exactly. And so there was uh, <clears throat> some records that were kept on some of the things that were taken, probably not a complete list, but it was said to be the treasure of the ages. 
And uh, there was things like pre-runic tablets in there, priceless goblets, uh, plaques with cuneiform script on it, uh, gold, silver, jewels. No mention of those larger things, but there wouldn't have been a record permitted on stuff that would have um, had a trail of some of the larger things that they may have been looking for. Um, now, what's interesting about Montesegur is is that was uh, a place where Alaric of the Visigoths, the one who sacked Rome and took the treasure of Jerusalem back with them there. That's how it ends up there, according to sort of the historical legendary trail. So after the Romans trashed uh, Jerusalem in 70 A.D., uh, they took things back to Rome, and Alaric took as part of the, his plunder uh, these Jerusalem treasures. And Ron believed that it was the aristocratic Cathars that inherited this treasure, and that the treasure um, included um, things that also were related to the Essenes, that the Essenes were working to guard these treasures while at, at the temple. So, uh, but what we don't get is we, you don't get a complete list of all of it. Uh, it's been lost or classified or, or destroyed. But uh, they were absolutely obsessed with uh, getting this type of occult treasure um, into their um, organizational structure and any edge that they could get over the world because they had big designs. They weren't just looking to rebuild the Holy Roman Empire that many were wanting to. He wanted to take over the whole world. Well, didn't, didn't, weren't there stockpiles of gold all over the world? I mean, even in the U.S. Um, yeah. A lot of, a lot of the gold in the U.S. Um, financed a lot of the occult experimentation that went on, especially in the Montauk project and some of the other projects out there. Uh, Nazi gold uh, has has financed a tremendous amount of uh, occult-tinted material all over the world. And, and they're still looking in, um, I think, in Japan and a couple of places. They're still looking for... Uh, stockpiles of the treasure that were scattered all over the world and hidden and have been guarded for decades going on centuries for when it's time for the Fourth Reich to um, emerge again. And it wouldn't surprise me if it weren't becoming more and more visible these days uh, because of the way um, at least this country is going. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, um, just to sort of go off uh, in a little bit different direction, um, according to, you know, books that I've read on Nostradamus, he predicts that in the time of the third Antichrist that there will be off-the-books money, so to speak, uh, thought to be... Uh, gold reserves that are going to fund uh, Antichrist and a lot of the European nations um, as we get into the end times. So 
it sort of gets you into sort of this understanding is is there's probably lots of places around the world where they're storing these things and who knows what's you know stored in switzerland with uh, the banking system basically centered there and uh you know a place where you can't track uh a funds unless they want it to be tracked and the wealth of the you know when i was doing the research for my first book yeah they were estimating in the early 2000s that the amount of off-the-books wealth uh, that the Rex Deus bloodlines or the black nobility of, of Europe had uh, was somewhere between 300 and 500 trillion. So that's mm-hmm. 20 years ago now. One wonders how much more that would be uh, today and how much they've grown it. Um, and it is probably not in cash because the old money is the old value system that's based on gold and jewels and silver and things like that. So I think uh, I think that's one of the things to anticipate down the road that they move, may move all of our on-the-books wealth to something not based on gold, which they already did, but into the new systems of currency and things that they'd like us to move into, and they'll just be wiped out. Um, And you look at what's being talked about with the Great Reset that they would like to bring about, and part of that is the forgiveness of all debt. And to do that, they're also going to take, so if you don't have any debt, they're going to take, go into your bank accounts and take everything, just as they did in, in, in Malta and a few other places in 2008, to pay for what they're doing to forgive all government debt and all human debt across the planet. So that, and they're going to take all your assets as well, so you won't be able to own anything. But there will be no debt. Everybody will be equal. And even the oligarchs that are working with these powers that control the world today, they're going to lose their money, but they're going to be promised to be funded coming out of that, and they're going to be even more wealthier than they are today. So if we look at you know the wealth of uh, Elon Musk or Bill Gates and people like that today, that is just a small sliver of the real wealth that's held by the real power. Right. And I, I think so many people think that the buck stops with Soros, and, and it doesn't. Um, every time no, you he's a like small an player. Onion, yeah, <laughs> every time player. you peel away, it, it's an onion, and every time you <laughs> peel away a level of it, you know, there's many more levels to go. So, But they've had thousands of years to kind of work on this. And yeah. and and they've done a great job, but when you look at um, like the Dead Sea Scrolls and and the the Essenes were hiding that material so that they, it couldn't be destroyed um, or brought into the light. Um, you look at Gobekli Tepe that was buried to hide whatever it held, um, and and we still don't know what it held, but but apparently there is some sort of wisdom there that hasn't been decoded yet. 
but that I, I think that all over the world there are pockets that that have been hidden from view until humanity, society, whatever you want to call it, is is ready to accept the wisdom that's gathered there, and it gives you a it gives you a weapon to fight what's coming. So that you know, are there battles ahead? Yeah, but they may not be with weapons. They may be more of a of a struggle for the the purity and and the stability of of the spirit of humanity. Yeah, that's crazy stuff. So, oh yeah. <laughs> what I what I what I like to advise people is is you know the people that are sort of out and being the face of what we think control the power of the world, they're not the ones that have the power. If you if we can see them, whether it's the Rothschilds or it is Soros or um, you know Gates or I mean whoever you want to put up there. Um, they're not the ones who are are controlling things. Otherwise, they wouldn't be as visible to us. So uh, I think it's important to sort of understand that. I think, uh, yeah, one thing what, that I would... What, well, what I'll slip in with, I think one thing that's so fascinating is that people that think they're at the top of the chain don't understand that they are, they've got strings on them too. So that yeah, it's a matter it of... Yeah, it just it, it it I don't know how many levels it goes to, but um enough so that what we see today, you know, they're they're little guys on the on the whole thing. They they don't have the control they think they do. And that's what happened with Hitler. I think that he got so carried away by his power, he didn't realize that he was being controlled the whole time. Yeah, he, he did not realize that, and you know he he looked at himself as a messianic figure, and he was doing everything that he could to uh, bring about this Third Reich with him as the fear that's going to create this new dynasty and a bloodline that's going to rule for for a thousand years, and I think once you get to that sort of obsession. And narcissism and hubris, um, then that's probably going to be a lot of the seeds to corruption, and that he, you know, had envisioned that it would be a specific race that he wanted to see dominate the world, which was he believed to be, uh, you know, the, the Aryan race. So, one of the things that sort of indicates uh, how possessed he was with his, this messianic sort of syndrome was that um, altar of Zeus that we were talking about that becomes on full display as a symbol of who he thinks he is. And what's interesting about that uh, altar that was in Pergamum is, is it is you know thought to be in the mythos the seat of Satan um, and where Satan rules from. Uh, I don't think he does rule from there, but that was sort of the thought that this was the head god of the of the post-Illusion Greek religion. But this altar was also set up, at least the look-alike altar was set up in the temple in 168 BC as part of an abomination of the temple. And that's what he was um, 
I think eventually wanting to do with the temple of of uh, of Zeus or the altar of Zeus is once he had control of Jerusalem and he was going to crown himself as as the Messiah of the world with that uh, ritual with that altar in in the temple in Jerusalem and of course after he had probably wiped out the Jewish people from the face of the earth. Well, what gets me is he was he wanted to set up his his world as an Aryan race. You know, the Aryans yeah. are supposed to be the rulers, but he was not Aryan. Matter of fact, he actually has some Jewish blood in him. So, you know, yeah. how did you know? And then, so it couldn't have. He he obviously was going to be the quote unquote head king, dictator, what what have you, but. His bloodline wasn't pure, so how was I mean? No. Unless he unless he thought he was going to live forever, um, which may have been the case. Um, it just to me he's he's you know creating a whole new source of you know structure for humanity, and yet and he's going to be the king, but he's not. I mean he, he would have been taken out immediately, I would think. Well, they did try. Yeah. He- he kind of, and and again, I think this might be partially true in terms of uh, how he looked at himself, was he believed he was an avatar uh-huh. and uh, of the Panarian gods. And so, again, because of the Eastern sort of religion coming through theosophy, an avatar is like Vishnu, um, who was the avatar for the avatar uh, Buddha and provided additional power and wisdom for Buddha. And he may, he may have thought that that was is what was going to change him and he could be the leader of it. Although, I mean, it's still hypocritical, but <laughs> it is, but he may have, he may have actually believed he had a different lineage than what was public, too. I mean, we don't know the things that he would have been deluding himself with. But but look at, you know, if you're an avatar for a god, you don't yep. give yourself the physical disabilities that he had. I mean, yeah. he had he, he had horrible digestive stuff going on and he had other stuff going on. And you know, I frankly, if I was his doctor, I would be terrified because you know he was dying or he was very, very yeah. ill. And and yeah. you know, Which I mean, suggests he wasn't he wasn't dealing with a symbiotic relationship with a you know a god that is providing you know additional powers health wisdom life all of the things that you would expect to sort of go along with that that he was probably dealing with as you mentioned earlier with some evil spirits i i would i would say there was probably that and and that element of the the spirit having taken him over to the degree that it was poisoning him from the inside out yeah but who yeah, wasn't one so. of his? Wasn't wasn't one of his higher echelon sort of been assigned as, as his uh, designated as, as his successor? Was it wasn't Himmler? It wasn't um, who was it? Uh, the one that took the plane to England and and 
you know. Yeah, the name the name escapes me, but I do, I do know who you're talking about. Yeah, but he, right, you know, right. he he even he even said at at some point in time that this was something that I need to, you know. Um, separate my, our, myself from right, and he actually, uh-huh. uh, I, I, you know, I think. But you know what? In that system, I mean, a successor would be a rival. Yeah, but there so, was no rival. There, there certainly were men with, yeah. with incredible power, but they, they, the power came from Hitler, and yep. you, they, they were all delusion. Well, no, his, his, the higher, <clears throat> the group. The group that you know sat at his round table, so to speak, um, they began to doubt him. They began to realize that he wasn't who he said he was. Um, yep. And, and there was that one attempt um, where where the the um, one of them brought a bomb into the conference room and left, and, and yep. Hitler was Hitler survived because the bomb was behind a big leg of the table, and therefore, um, yep. you know, he he survived it, but. It just it it seems to me that the, the yes there was a possession of sorts and there was nowhere along the way where you can say ah here's where here's where he diverted from his his cause of you know keeping the german people safe and stuff like that i mean he, he it, it was almost from the very beginning he was bound and determined to conquer and destroy. Yeah, I think when Hitler and his whole leadership team, when they, you know, reached the level of sort of continuous uh, communication with these high, higher power beings um, for influencing them all, I think it just it just overtook them. And, uh, I, you know, I, I wonder sometimes whether or not they're actually in control or not. Um, but that's, you know, just, uh, just, you know, kind of a demon spirits don't seem to want to have a symbiotic relationship, although there's also an understanding in the occult um, religions with shamans and adepts that you can take on some types of uh, daemon type of spirits that are not angelic, but will still add to your your power. So, and probably because you would have the ability to command them, I suppose. Uh, otherwise, well, they would take well, it over, right? And suppress. Well, the, well suppress the host. What about what about Solomon's ring that was given to yep. him by one of the angels? Was it was it Michael? I for, I forget which angel gave it to him, but he had a ring that he could control demons, and that's what helped to build the temple. Yes, and, and, and it's a sort of a common sort of understanding that there was an ability to control demons. What those controls were, uh, hard to know. Uh, sometimes it was thought to be just by knowing their name and a few other things you can control them or some sort of spell or whatever. But uh, certainly they had access, and they said they had access to these spirit beings. And that they're the ones who provided them the technology. Well, does, didn't yeah. um, Maria Orsic, uh wasn't she uh, a psychic that communicated and gave 
um, a lot of the the military stuff to the to the scientists yep. that were able to then yes. develop uh, the, the jet the jet plane before we did. Well, exactly. I mean, if you look at what Adolf Hitler is going to be taking over when he comes to power, um, you know, this is not that long after World War One where the Kaisers are removed from power, the nation is bankrupt, and that's why Hitler comes to power. They don't have an army. They are under absolute tight control on everything that they can do, and they're very upset about this for all of the things that were imposed on them. So they don't have what we see coming out in 1939, in 1933. So you have six years where they have nothing in place, and they almost succeed and with their allies on, on taking over the world. So we see this blitzkrieg strategy that comes out of nowhere because the weapon, the type of weapons they were using, they hadn't really had much opportunity to experiment with them, but all they haven't been able to move this line in a way that was unimaginable before the war starts. And part of that is is the development of the Panzer and the Tiger tanks. They were so far ahead of the technology that these are still the base technology for modern tanks. They had an ability in their slant to deflect opposing tanks, um, projectiles off of them. They were thicker. They were faster. They had bigger guns. They were light years, so to speak, to use hyperbole, ahead of everybody else, uh, including the Americans. The problem was is they just couldn't produce enough of them fast enough. But they had a technology that we're kind of using today. And then they created the jet engine, just sort of out of nowhere. It comes up, and had they had enough time and built enough, they probably would have taken, you know, won the war just by taking out the air force of all of their enemies and controlling the uh-huh. skies. And they created the single air, uh, wing aircraft, you know, that, you know, came out, I guess it's, you know, a little bit time now, but it was, you know, when you had, had the, the, this technology show up in, in the U.S. Air Force in the, in the 90s, it, um, it was absolutely revolutionary, but they had it before. They created the rocket engine um, well before anybody was even thinking about doing it. They were well on their way developing atomic weapons. And they also had created some sort of bell-shaped technology, and there's lots of theories as to what that was, but a lot of it is is that that's thought to have been a portal or some sort of interdimensional or time travel machine. Um, And when I look at some of these things that Hitler was doing in that Magianic sort of positioning that he put himself in and how he looked at himself and the altar of Zeus and trying to become the king of the world, so to speak, 
if I look at what Antichrist does in, in Daniel 8.10 at the midpoint of the last seven years, he's going to go into heaven. <laughs> and he's going to war with the angels um, in heaven. And he may even be wanting to go into the abyss prison, the pit prison, to get his God out of the prison. Well, and isn't this is that similar what Nim- to what Nimrod, isn't that yeah, what Nimrod Nimrod did. I mean, he was he. You know, the tower wasn't necessarily built to communicate. It was built to do war with and take over. Yeah, I mean, you, when when you hear the the stories of Nimrod, who was again hubris because he was an antichrist type figure with one religion imposed on all of the Noahites at that time. And he's going to build this tower. He's going to build this tower yeah. into heaven with mud bricks. And it's this tower or ziggurat that he's building. That's not really possible. But in <laughs> ancient times, I mean, it's just physically not possible. But it, right. it's not really what I think he was trying to do. So in, in ancient times, they built pyramids, ziggurats, and towers, which are thought to be similar types of structures for similar purposes as technologies on ley lines and power grids and were thought to be portals and gateways into other dimensions. And that word in Akkadian, uh, as it comes out with the uh, Babel story, doesn't mean confusion of language. It's Babalu versus Babel, but just the transliteration thereof means Bab isn't a gateway or a portal or a stargate. Um, and ILU, transliteration of EL for a god or an angel. This is a gateway of the gods this is a portal or this is a massive technology that would permit nimrod to do to go into hades or sheol to free his uh, gods that he was worshiping and anybody else that was locked in there because you have the spirits of those beings in the sides of the abyss as ezekiel 32 and isaiah 14 talk about and he would have also gone in into heaven but what is also interesting is that if it was something that had that type of technology, which now would be thought to be like almost like AI mixing with quantum computing and mechanics, one wonders whether or not it had the ability from that knowledge to go back in time or forward in time or whatever he wanted to do. And the reason why I throw that out, just because it's kind of related sort of technology, angelic te- technology of the ancient past, is because Antichrist has said that he will try and change the times when he comes to power. Ah. So one, so one wonders, again, as you make those sort of connections as to whether or not that technology was there, but... All of this comes out of nowhere, gets developed very rapidly, and given enough time, who would have been able to stop him? Who would have been able to make war with him? Nobody. Because once you get that kind of power, um, you can't be. I mean, it's not like Caesar where everybody can gang up on you and stab you. It's, It's you have a power that can shield you from anybody and anything. So, so, and 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 one does wonder if he had been able to do that, and once he had conquered the world, 
what would he have done and where would he have gone because he would have had the power of the portals to be able to go yeah. in other places. Yeah. Yeah, and and again, we don't know what they did before the flood. Um, but what we do know is, is some of the records that come out of some of the ancient writings, and I think the Ugaritic texts are very, very clear on some of their um, accounts. And portals were a significant part of uh, the writing and, and, and the culture. So not only did they walk and live amongst the gods, as they did before the flood, but they created demigods. Um, and these demigods not only were healers, uh, both of themselves and others, as noted in the uh, Ugaritic text, but they're also the demigod giants, and they were also known as the Rapiu, the Rapayam. Uh, RPM would be the original Semitic that Raphaim comes from. Uh, Hebrew is an offshoot of Semitic languages. And that they had the ability to go through portals um, almost seemingly regularly. Uh, the gods could go through any time that they wanted, but certainly you have people going to the ends of the earth and in the earth searching for Baal, for example, when he goes missing. Mm-hmm. And that when kings died, they would lead a processionary um parade into their heaven, into Hades, into Sheol, where their gods lived. And so this was common knowledge. Where else would they go? We don't know. Uh, It doesn't say that in the Ugaritic text or or other writings, but it certainly opens up possibilities as to what else he would have had in mind. So it's important to understand that, you know, let's say uh, Gilgal Raphaim is a ancient location that's called the Wheel of the Giants or the Wheel of the Spirits. It's got several other names. It's located on the Golan Heights at the foot of Mount Hermon. It has hundreds of domains or portals. And a dolmen is a mini Stonehenge figure. So you got two rocks that stand straight up and then you have a covering rock. So it's like a doorway. But that would be have to be located in an area that had power and the ability to um, create the technology to utilize that that portal. And so in the Ugaritic texts, um, in their circuits uh, that they worship, which is part of this whole Mount Hermon culture, they had the circuits of these locations that were located on those grid lines that they could activate that technology. So this is, and the important thing to remember on that technology is, is that's angelic technology. That is way beyond uh, what humans have been able to develop. But all of this that we've been talking about with with uh, Nazi Germany is almost like a archetype or a prototype for what we could look for for things in um, the end time. Well, um, let, me, and, let, me, let me ask you something yep. here. If these portals um, are created and, and powered by angelic power, yep. to be able to have access to the power, it can be corrupted depending upon the person who is accessing it. Yes, absolutely. So, so, that, so that a bad guy create, you know, using that power. Um, 
which no one could actually defend against, um, would be, it's sort of like it's it's power that doesn't have a good or a bad. It's like it's like karma. It's not good or it's not bad. It's who uses it, yeah. who accesses it, that exactly. determines what's going to be done with it. And yeah, it doesn't knowledge any... and technology isn't good or bad either. It's how it's, it's everything. Like it's how it's used that's important, right? And the wisdom to be able to, and the discipline to be able to apply knowledge. And if you don't have that, it ought not to be developed. Yeah. <laughs> Well, exactly. And what we've got today is um, people getting to, and it doesn't have anything to do with level of consciousness. It's level of awareness that is the, the big deal here. Consciousness deals just with the mind. Awareness deals with the spirit. So that, um, so that, any, any, you know, it, it's kind of like anybody can fly a plane given the power to do it. And so what you've got here is is people who are trying to seize that power that don't necessarily have the purity of spirit in order to do something good with it. Exactly. And any time that you centralize that power into too few people or one individual, it's going to be corrupted um, because that's just kind of who we are, as, as, as in, in our human uh, nature. So, and what's also interesting is is that you know we seem to be ramping up in our technology in a very fast way. That's almost inexplicable or unaccounted for in the same way that the Nazis ramped it up. Uh-huh. And that part of the end time overarching signs, and there's three, the fig tree generation, um, if we're in the fig tree generation, and I think we might be, um, and the sorrows, uh, which are the things that get stronger in the last uh, generation, um, but also the days of Noah, both before and after the flood. And Noah lived 600 years before the flood and 350 after the flood. So in the time of this rapidly developed technology before the flood uh, that seemingly also got out of control, uh, caused the flood, including with all of the wars and things that were going on with it, and in the Ugaritic versions, what happened after the flood. Um, and And similar to what, Nimrod is said to have had access through in Gnostic and Masonic uh, records, particularly in the Polychronicon, um, where he received the Enochian knowledge from before the flood that merged with the angelic technology, and uh-huh. that was taken to Nimrod, who's the one who's building Babel, um, that seemingly had now the knowledge to do the things that we were talking about through that, you know, that portal. So this is the knowledge that we seem to be, um, kind of knowledge that seems to be being developed and developed very, very quickly right now. And so it's akin to, you know, sort of more of a hyper-intensity or increasing of the pang, so to speak, of the sorrows uh, versus what happened in, in World War II. 
So I think we need to keep an eye on, on this technology and we need to keep an eye on globalism because all of this takes national socialism as a possibility to a worldwide scale. So you don't have to conquer the whole world, you just control the whole world and, uh-huh. and impose the system just as Nimrod had done. And, of course, other parallels is, you know, Hitler considered him a Magianic, himself a Magianic figure and an avatar. So you have Antichrist, who's thought to be, in a lot of cases, to be a Christ consciousness. And biblically, uh, we understand that angels can enter into humans because biblically we get uh, Satan entering into Judas to have enough courage to betray Jesus. So in all sort of religions and accounts, you get this kind of capability that will provide Antichrist additional power. Antichrist also has, as depicted in Revelation 16, uh, at the time of Armageddon, two demons come out of his mouth. They also come, or demons come out of his mouth, demons come out of the mouth of the false prophet and out of Satan to gather the armies to Armageddon for the last war. So there's demons that are involved, just as demons that were involved with Hitler, according to the records that we have and the statements and things like that. Now, what's also interesting, and going back to what we were talking about earlier, you can translate those lines in Revelation 16 as a command or the ability of ordering and directing these demons. So again, uh, he may, you know, you have the, that sort of parallel, but now they've got sort of absolute control over these demons to, to do their bidding. You have uh, the Nazis trying to create the new Nephilim, the new man concept. And so this is kind of what we're seeing with what's being talked about in the world today. I mean, we want to create immortality. We want to change the genes. We want to do whatever it takes. To become a god in this physical world or a demigod, you're going to need immortality and unlimited knowledge. And I think when we did the CERN show, we talked about where that knowledge will come from through an access to the divine essence and through through the chip system. So that's part of the whole thing on steroids again Um, you have a polytheist religion that was introduced to be the religion of the third reich throughout the world in 1933 the rice church you have babylon which is mystery babylon which is the greek word mysterian which means a mystery religion that is going to be the woman that controls the seven um empires of the world and also the end time empire uh, before antichrist sets up his new imp- uh, new religion just as hitler set up a new religion uh, and as you said he was originally a catholic and i think and uh, i think you have a relationship with babylon and the takeover of the roman church that antichrist is going to destroy at the midpoint of the last seven years as recorded in revelation 17 Jeremiah 51, um, Revelation 14 and 18, uh, just so people know where I'm making that uh, connection to. You also have this throne that he's going to set up in the Jerusalem at the abomination and the throne of Satan, uh, which 
understood in let's say the Freemason um, understanding is is you have the Trinity as Isis, Osiris, and Horus, with let's say Osiris in this case being an allegory for the great architect of the universe. Um, also is the same god of the Zoroastrians and, and Mithraism. So again, you get that sort of consistency of those, some of those polytheist religions coming down through history. And you get that seed of Satan that is referenced in Revelation 2.13, 9 and verse uh, Revelation 3 9. So you get these connections, and there's more. I mean, the Third Reich, as we talked about, is a thousand year reign that he was looking to do. Some people call the new age that will Antichrist wants to put in as the Fourth Reich. I think it's probably more accurately called the new the new age or the new Atlantean age that they would like to like to bring about. Um, you have, as we said, don't you, don't you, in a way, find it a coincidence that Hitler was gonna his thousand year Reich sort of corresponds to the thousand years of peace that we're supposed to have after Armageddon? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and just as Antichrist will offer peace and safety, he will. That will be one of the things that he offers to the world. So again. Uh, it, you have that same sort of similarity that, that that comes together between the two possible scenarios. Hitler usurped the government. Antichrist, as we mentioned, will probably usurp the government as well uh, and will conspire with the Ten Kings to get rid of Babylon. And he will up through three of those kings when he takes over. You had a genocide of the Jewish people. Uh, in World War II. From a Christian perspective, it's going to be Christians and the Judaic people and the awakened lost tribes of Israel who will be persecuted first by Babylon and starting before the last seven years. And Revelation 2.10 talks about 10 days or 10 years of this very high-level tribulation uh, that will go on for the Christians. And then you have, in the last three and a half years, after the tribulation of the saints, you have the great tribulation not seen since the creation of the world. That will lead to the apex, to the year of the of the Lord's wrath from the biblical perspective. So again, you have that as being part of this. And Antichrist in Revelation is going to try and wipe Judea from the face of the earth. And all of the 12 stars is uh, talked about in Revelation 12, and that includes the awakened lost tribes in the end time. And so one of the differences will be is that um, Antichrist to take over the world won't have to start a world war. He'll actually, you know, take credit for winning a counterfeit Armageddon. But he doesn't start that war. So this is the war of Ezekiel 38 and 39, the Gog and Magog war in the end time, but before the midpoint of the last seven years and after the abyss is opened in Revelation 9. It is the Joel 1 and 2 war that has the same types of beings in the army that's recorded in the Revelation 9, 200 million man war. And of course, Antichrist will need a, from a Christian perspective, will need a counterfeit Armageddon to counterfeit what Jesus will do at the true uh, Armageddon from a Christian perspective. So again, um, he will take 
take credit for winning that war, but he will essentially ascend to power without having to conquer the whole world because he takes over that Ten King Empire. And with being in league with them, as Daniel 11 talks about, he is going to overthrow Babylon, as we talked about earlier. So then he sets up his new religion. So he will also come equipped as Daniel 11 talks about, with special knowledge and discernment of not only Scripture, but of ancient knowledge. And this is the same type of knowledge that uh, that Hitler was looking for. And he will use this knowledge to turn it against the people of of Judea and against the people of, of, uh, what we'll call the saints or the loyal uh, Christians to uh, the God of the Bible when Antichrist comes to power. So you have so many parallels to learn from, and we don't seem to learn these lessons from history is, I guess, the big point, because what was will be again. And there is one major intersection, which is, you know, the end time, um, where all of this is going to be resolved. Well, you know, when you think about this, you know, and you're thinking about armies and wars and everything, it is that literal or is it figurative? So that so that frankly, I'm at war with my checkbook all the time. Um, can it be can it be, you know, you know, a war that that is that is that that is an economic war that that you know pushes people into poverty and and therefore you know they they lose their direction is i mean i i don't get the feeling it's going to be with bombs and planes and armies i think it's going to it feels to me as though it's going to be a war of other sorts but one in which we all suffer I think it's 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 kind of all of the above, but I wouldn't take uh, and I, and by saying that I wouldn't take the wars off the table. Um, at least from a Christian perspective, you get the descriptions of the death that comes with those wars, and I think. Um, well, look at look the at wars just get at, bigger and stronger, right? So. Look at the the war that we've had with viruses. I mean, millions of people perished. Yep. Well, that's why, it's from a, from, again, from a Christian perspective, Barbara, those are part of the sorrows that get stronger throughout that fig tree generation. So the, the sorrows that are talked about and uh, are, in Matthew, uh, wars and rumors of war, pestilence, uh-huh. famine, earthquakes, and as Luke adds, is surging seas. So something to probably to do with the heavenly bodies that are going to cause the oceans to rock. So you've got all of those. That's a conflagration of things that are going to add to it. But we ought not to take the wars off the table. Um, you know, and, and they get so strong that by the time you get to the seal openings that is at about the time of the last seven years, you're going to have a war that is so big that it's going to kill and remove, along with these other things that go along with it. Um, And just as the four horsemen bring with all of that sort of conflagration of events as well, um, that line up perfectly with the sorrows, by the way, but you're going to have 25% destruction of the whole world. The trumpets will bring 
33%. And the raft bowls would be full measure if they were allowed to be fully completed. And then we get saved. Yes. Theoretically. Theoretically. A lot of trouble to go through before you get saved. Um, it just it feels well, to me as I would say I I would say it's you know there's not that many people that are left alive at the end. So, but from a Christian perspective, that's not how you become saved. Um, but the world no, no, is saved. I guess that. <laughs> but, but but at the very end, what is left? I mean, what do you There's gain not much. if if your if your um, victory has you know destroyed the land you're fighting over? I mean, are, is it is it a battle for the soul or is it a battle for the physicality? Well, you've got both of those things going on. Um, but what is fought out in the physical plane uh, from a physical sort of perspective is that total physical aspect, but it leads into what happens to the, to the spirit, um, understanding there's a soul, spirit, and body. Yeah. Um, so, and what I mean by that is that um, in the spirit realm, you don't need the physical Earth exactly. or the physical universe, um, yeah. but from a new age perspective, as in the millennium, uh, in a Christian term, is is you have this extension of this physical world, and in the Bible, it's for another thousand years before you get a new heavens and a new earth. So, not everybody is going to be killed, and there's certainly. From a biblical perspective, lost Israel and Judah will be protected in the wilderness. There will be survivors around the world to go into the millennium. And just as earth was renewed um, in days one through six uh, in Genesis, that same power can renew the earth to make it inhabitable in not that long of a period of time with omnipotent power for people to live in going into the millennium. And I would think that that would be said from the polytheist side as well, just from that power of of saving that you can renew things. And that comes from, you know, if I I remember correctly, with Shiva, which would be equivalent to a polyanabadon Azazel, um, Uh is the destroyer god that says that how you uh, renew things is through destruction. So out of those ashes, you rebuild a new world. So... I shudder to think anybody would want to go with that sort of doctrinal in terms of what the, the, the forces will be doing, but I'm, I'm thinking they may not be afraid of taking it to that point so that they can start anew again. I'm, you know, it's the phoenix rising out of the ashes of the old. And yeah. I wonder if, you know, knowing that there are millions of years that this planet has been around, if this is a cycle that has been repeated throughout those millions of years time and time again and what the bible gives us is this is what happened or is going to happen because we've seen that that it was going that it's happened before and and you know the information is put biblically of course this time but i'm wondering if this is 
part of a cycle that the the planet and and possibly the human spirit has seen before in the millions of years this planet has been here. Yeah, and I think biblically we can get there as well, although not standard dogma. Um, so you know, in Second Peter, when it's talking about the end time, and when we're talking about the destruction in the end time, that's not been seen since the beginning of creation. You have uh, words that are used that uh, this world is being reserved for fire to be destroyed just as it was in the past. And I'm paraphrasing here, you know, the wa- of the world that was uh, destroyed that was in water and then out of the water. And a lot of people think that is referencing to uh, the flood, but it's not because the world didn't perish in the flood. In this, in in, in Second Peter, is talking about uh, the world perishing that was in the water and out of the water. So if you look at, and I won't take forever on this because you could do a show on this. Um, Psalms 104 talks about the earth being renewed when God sends His Spirit, and you have the Holy Spirit that is hovering over the waters in Genesis 1-1 to 1-2, and you can translate Genesis 1-1 to 1-2 that the world, not as the standard dogma, was void and formless, but became void and formless. And then you can look at those words, void and formless, and other words uh, like became, uh, in terms of how that meaning could also support the idea of the world became void and formless, suggesting there was something that happened before that and that the renewal of the earth was just building up from the foundations of of the earth. And so if we're talking about from the beginning of creation then and that the creation, first creation was before Genesis 1, 1 and 2 and that there was some sort of war or destruction of the earth that collapsed the waters above onto the waters below and that in days one through six that's what is part of the recreation or the renewal when the waters are separated which will bring up the land and it's kind of the same story in polytheist cultures as well is that this world is way older than the standard dogma of 6,000 years which is only the, the lineage of Adam to about now um, but we have this possible huge gap in Genesis 1, 1 to 1, 2. And just as if a year is a thousand, one day is a thousand years, you have, a, you have more than just, um, you know, the days of creation. There could be a thousand years that are part of these creations. And Adam is created sometime after uh, day seven. We're not told when. And his creation is completely different than the people in day six. And I have great documents on this that people want to get a hold of me to walk people through it scripturally. Um, that uh, that starts to really start to bring home these words that are being used in New Testament prophecy about this ancient world, about this destruction, about not since destruction not seen since creation, as, as to when the angelic rebellion might have happened. Um, so it really sort of underscores is that, you know, when it says nothing is new under the sun, what has been will be again is, is we don't know how many times this has happened. The difference this time from a Christian perspective is, is there seems to be a direct, uh, ending to this cycle 
that begins with this end time and with the millennium and then on into eternity. Well, fascinating. I, I mean, I, you know, we have, among other things, um, in the future of humanity, if we survive that long, a pole shift coming up in, in a couple thousand years. So, um, you know, at, at that point, there will be a pole shift and everything will be shifted around, possibly destroyed, and we'll start again. So it it does make you, you know, as as you've said before and I've said over and over all over the place, you know, if you don't understand history, you're going to be doomed to repeat it. There's a sense here of looking at how history has evolved and how people have come to power and lost power and come to power and lost power. And as as we become more aware, the power that we grab is so much stronger that, you know, I can't conceive of what would go beyond what would, what would the kind of power that you're talking, if it's angelic energy that can be channeled into this world for destruction or for the, for the opposite. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, just, just look at the be... weaponry. Just look at the yeah. weaponry that's described in the Vedas. In oh that yeah. War of the gods. I mean, those are planet destroying weapons. Absolutely. And, and described yeah, as such. Yeah. Especially with the Vedas, um, you know, they they went after each other. But I don't. Re- did they ever actually come over? Come after the. The people on the planet, or were the people on the planet just observing? It seems to be observing, uh, and the war seems to be being fought amongst the gods. Mm-hmm. I mean, how wise of them to take their battle somewhere else and not take it at home. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you <know>. terrific. <laughs> I mean, yeah. If, if I was going to do battle, I wouldn't do it on my in my backyard. I'd go way far away and let's fight over here where we won't destroy what we've already created. Um, and I wonder sometimes if maybe that's what's happening here. That that you know well, we and, become and, the battlefield. But if but if we look at what if we look at from a Christian perspective that you will have people on Earth partnering with the fallen rebellious angels. Um, then if you had this ancient war of the angels or the gods, um, then one would presume you could, you could deduce either way, but it would seem more likely that history repeats itself is, is that again, there was sides that were choosing on earth for each side in, in prehistory. Gary, could this be, a continuation of the angelic war. I think it is. I think what we're seeing is the extent is the um, uh, continuing continuation of the angelic war. And I, know, I think also in in my new book, uh, you know, I talk about this concept that I think that uh, the creation of the Adamites was done as part of the plan as the resolution to the angelic rebellion. And so that gets resolved through this final act if we are in in the end time well if the if if the angelic energies are eternal then it would seem to me that we, this battle could go on forever 
Well, that's the dualistic uh, polytheist side of it. The monotheist side of it is is that at the end of this scenario, at the end time, is is that all of the fallen angels um, will go to the lake of fire and will be there forever. Um, because they're immortal beings, so they're going to be there forever. They don't get the second death. And also those who take the mark of the beast and probably some others as well. But um, this, this, so from a monotheist perspective, this comes to an end. From a polytheist perspective, it would continue. Because the good and evil are perpetually at war forever. Yeah, so, so they learn to swim and eventually either somebody capitulates and, and lets them loose or they find a way out. I mean, it just, it's, it's a fascinating um, struggle throughout it all is. And, time. And, and so much that we don't know. But what I always try and advise people is that no matter what your belief system is, secular, whatever polytheist religion, whatever monotheist religion is, be a contrarian. I, I look at myself as a Christian contrarian. But search things out for yourself so that you are comfortable with what you believe. Just don't accept what somebody else says. You need to be searching things out because, you know, I think we're here for a reason. And I think we have to do our own due diligence um, because there is seemingly a good and evil side, no matter which belief system that you come from. Even in secular, mm-hmm. there's good and bad people. Uh, so you just need to decide who you think are the good people and, and, and make your decisions. Um, and no decision is a decision. So uh, I would encourage people to, to learn more and then make your own decision, whatever that decision is, and be comfortable with it. Right. Well, I just noticed our time, but but for anybody who has been fascinated with this conversation, um, I'm going to talk Gary into doing a series of shows on his new book so that you'll have a chance to um, be further informed um, and hopefully use the information wisely. I want, to, I want to thank you so much again, and I look forward to doing this yet again because I, I learn so much every time I talk to you. It's been it's been fun and it's amazing how fast two hours can go by. So yes, uh, hoping that we've connected <laughs> I'm hoping we've connected a few dots for the audience and maybe raise some curiosity to I think we have run out of time. Um do join us again. Tomorrow night there's another good show. So do check in there, and we will be talking to all of you very, very soon. Good night now.